Well, this morning, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 21. Isaiah chapter 21, we're going through a book series uh, through the book of Isaiah. And uh, you'll stand where you're at at home. We'll prepare for the reading of God's Word. Isaiah chapter 21. Isaiah 21. I encourage you to read through the book of Isaiah and just maybe even read two or three chapters ahead of time before we even get to the passage and just jot down notes to yourself. Well, what does this mean? And I don't understand this. And we want to help, help you give some understanding to it and application to it. I'm excited about next week's message. Uh, probably of all the chapters, chapters probably 13 to 25 are probably more, more uh, I would say probably more difficult ones uh, in trying to understand a concept because there's some concepts there that you need to get familiar with. And, uh, but they're good, they're good concepts and uh, there's encouragement and all that. And there's good encouragement this morning from what we're going to study. Next week, I'm very encouraged by that, and, and uh, you'll see that next week. And I hope that you'll invite people to come to be a part of that. And, uh, as, and, and while we're in this situation where we're having to rely on live stream, we're going to be uh, periodically just encouraging you and preparing you for evangelistic services where I want you to just help me invite people to join those services. The gospel can be preached, and we'll have something alongside of that to encourage those people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 21, I want you to go to verse 5 with me. Isaiah 21, we're going to read verses 5 to 10. I'm going to preach a whole chapter this morning, but I want you to see verses 5 to 10 so you kind of get the idea of where we're going this morning. Read aloud at home, if you would, please. Prepare the table. Watch in the watchtower. Eat. Drink. Arise, ye princes, and anoint the shield. For thus has the Lord said unto me, Go, Set a watchman, let him declare what he seeth. And you might want to put in the margin Bible there, the watchman was Isaiah. God told Isaiah to be the watchman. And he saw a chariot with a couple of horsemen, and a chariot of asses, and a chariot of camels. And he hearkened diligently with much heed. That's talking about the watchman. And he cried, a lion, my Lord, now he's praying, my Lord, I stand continually upon the watchtower in the daytime, and I am set in my ward whole nights. And behold, here cometh a chariot of men with a couple of horsemen. And he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Please underline that. Because that's a recurring phrase you'll hear in Isaiah. You'll see it in Jeremiah 20, uh, 51, I believe. And you're going to see in the book of Revelation as we preach through there. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And all the graven images of her gods, he is broken unto the ground. Oh, my threshing. And the corn of my floor, that which I heard of the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have I declared unto you. This morning I want to bring you a message entitled, Standing Upon the Watchtower. We're preaching to believers this morning about our responsibility of standing upon the watchtower of God. Bless your word now this morning. Already we've been encouraged from what we've read. We've looked at the mirror of your word. 
We cannot forget and we should not forget what manner of man we wore. Break up the fallow ground of our hearts that the precious incorruptible seed of your word can go deep, make its roots, and go downwards and bear fruit upwards. And bring forth fruit 25, 50, and 100 fold. Lord, maybe because of what we've read this morning and what we hear, that every one of us would go out of our places with creative strategies, we'd be flaming evangelists for the glory of God. Be glorified, I pray, through this word that you gave us here in chapter 21. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Perhaps as we think about watchtowers, perhaps one of the most famous places that comes to our mind, two places I can think of, the first place would be the Great Wall of China. Some of you have had occasion to travel there and to Beijing, and of course, one of the many highlights in Beijing is going to the, the, uh, the Great Wall of China, the, at least the parts that they'll let you see as a tourist. And along the way on the wall, which is a very long wall, which was built during several dynasties, were guard towers. Significant locations to watch for enemy movement. If you've studied Rome a little bit, Rome as they made their way, it's made its way through Europe, especially through England and Spain, had many different watchtowers. Hadrian's Wall in England had a watchtower there, where guards would be posted and would watch. In chapter 21. There are several nations that are mentioned in this chapter in our reading. Babylon, which is called the desert of the sea, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. But Babylon is mentioned predominantly here in verse 9. Elam, which is uh, an ancient name for Persia. Medea, which you remember the Persians and Medes joined together. Uh, Arabia. And Assyria, which is really the judgment nation of God, and is pictured as the nation that comes from the desert from a terrible land. And specifically in chapter 21, we see the fall of three nations. We see the fall of Babylon. We see the fall of Edom. And we see the fall of, of, of Arabia. Isaiah does not mention his name in this chapter. But Isaiah records for us what he saw. You know, when you read your devotions, you read your Bible in the morning, it's good to have a journal and to write down what you've read. It's good when you've had a wonderful experience to have a journal and keep a record of what you see. And Isaiah here in chapter 21 gives us a record of what he saw and what it did to him. It affected him. It moved him. He had a preview of things to come. Things that would happen after he would die. Things that would happen while he's alive. Things that will happen many years thereafter. He had a preview of things to come. And I guess as we read this this morning, I don't guess, but when we see something like what he read, it should move us. It should, it should stir us. I prayed this morning that there's a holy stirring in our congregation about the reassembly of Heritage Baptist Church. 
I hope there's a stirring in your heart about God bringing his people back together, a physical assembly. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. But so much more as you see the day approaching. And this morning I want us without any further ado to see what it means to be standing in the watchtower. First of all, I want you to notice in verses 1 and 2, we see the watchman's vision. This chapter opens up, just like the previous chapters, with Isaiah seeing a burden. And the burden speaks about a heavy message. A message that God felt he could be trusted with. A message that would stir him. And in this message, he says, the burden of the desert of the sea. As whirlwinds in the south pass through, so it cometh from the desert from a terrible land. He's speaking about Babylon and Assyria. Babylon is called the desert of the sea because of its unique location. You can look on a map, an ancient map, of its location next to the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. South of them would be coming Assyria, coming up from the south and attacking them. He has a vision here of the attack upon Babylon. He's going to see that happen. He's going to see the fall. In fact, I want you to notice here in verse 4, verse 4 says, My heart panted, fearfulness affrighted me. The night of my pleasure has he turned into fear unto me. You know, in verse 4, he had a prophetical vision of the fall of Babylon under King Belshazzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. That's recorded for us in Daniel chapter 5. The time it happened, there was a great, a great feast that Belshazzar had. And it was not a separate feast of set where the men were by themselves and women by themselves. He brought them together. It was basically a banqueting feast of terrible proportions. And God brought the handwriting on the wall. And that night, the Medes and Persians attacked and, and, and Babylon fell there. Babylon in Scripture, beginning over there in, in, over there in Genesis 10, Babylon has always been associated as the heart of idolatrous worship. If you want to get a good study on Babylon and where it pictures there, we find the root beginnings of Babylon beginning with a man by the name of Nimrod. We read later on about the Tower of Babel. Listen, false religion, the roots of idol worship, the roots of New Age worship all began with Nimrod and with his wife. The worship of the little child began with the worship of their son, the worship of the sun and the moon, all of these kind of things all began with Nimrod. And we find as we go through the Bible, Babylon is always a picture of idolatry idolatrous worship. It has always been a picture as the center of commercialism, and it was during its height. It was one of the four great world powers that Daniel spoke about there in his, in his prophecies, and it was. It's always been the center of commercialism and world trade, and it's always been a stronghold of political power. Babylon, as we see it, has always been seen as cruel, crafty, and corrupt. Isaiah had a vision. The Bible describes it as a grievous vision. You know, when we think about a vision, we think about, we think about things that are, have not yet occurred. We think about a revelation. The Bible talks about in Proverbs 28 that about a vision from God. Where there be no vision, the people perish. And of course, the vision there, specifically and contextually, is talking about a revelation of God's word. It's a vision of God's word. But we think about a vision of someone being able to look into the future and see things that other people can't see. One of my favorite illustrations about that is Walt Disney, the founder of, Walt, of uh, Disneyland and Disney World. And he had, he had architected this dream in his mind about Disney World there in Orlando. But he had passed away from lung cancer. And the member of the board of directors, had, they were assembled together 
concert and the, on the inauguration of Disney World. And it was such a magnificent place. And still is today. And, they, and they made, one of them made the statement, it's too bad that Walt is not here to see this. And one of the board members who was very close to him said, oh, but he did. That's why it's here. Walt Disney had a vision of things to be. I think about our church. There was a vision for a church starting. We didn't know where it would start. We didn't know where it would be located. We didn't know what kind of building. We just knew that there was a need for a church. Listen, thank God for visions for churches to be established. We may not be able to see 20 years down the line when we see that, but we can see a people assembling and worshiping God and the gospel being preached and people being invited and the first set of tracts being published and being given out to people and inviting them to church. There was a vision that led to the assembly in the start of Heritage Baptist Church. There was a vision that led to the purchase of property. There was a vision that led to the purchase of vehicles. There was a vision that saw ministries being birthed and started. There was a vision of children's ministries and teenager ministries and college ministries and adult ministries. There was a time we only had one adult Sunday school class and now we've got seven or eight adult Sunday school classes, maybe even nine Sunday school classes and we're looking when we can reassemble at some point in time that we'll start more classes there. I'm just saying we look at all these things and we look at the expansion on our property here, 2916 Merced Street. All of that was because of a vision and we think of a vision of being positive things and we think about a vision of growth but notice here, Isaiah did not have that kind of a vision. Before God even put him on the watchtower, God gave him what is called a grievous vision. It was a true vision. It was a tragic vision. Because in this passage we're going to see, was written here, it was declared by the prophet of God, as a warning to multiple nations that they needed to repent and turn towards God. It was a troubling vision. He said, a grievous vision is declared unto me. I think about our Lord Jesus Christ, the outset of his ministry. He had not chosen his disciples yet, the 12 that would follow him, that he would train. And he's at this mountainside where we get Matthew 5, 6, and 7 preaching what has been called the Sermon on the Mount. Perhaps the greatest sermon ever preached. We get to chapters 8 and 9 and we see Jesus going everywhere, doing everything for everyone. He's got a lot of followers, but he's going through what we would call the proving process. Do I have disciples? Do I have people that I can pass the baton to who can catch the vision and go on? And we get to chapter 9, and Jesus makes this. He stops. It's a very poignant positioning. And he stops... And the Bible says, he saw the multitudes, and he was moved with compassion upon them. For he saw them as sheep that are scattered without a shepherd. Jesus was the very first church planter. He saw people that needed to be in church. He saw the need of churches being established. 
and they needed to be pastored. And he said to his, these, these people assembled there, the harvest truly is plenteous. He was giving them a vision. But he said, the laborers are few. He's saying, you know what? You guys have been watching me. I've been going everywhere, doing everything for everyone. How about you? And even though the scriptures don't declare it, there could have been 12 men who heard those words and moved a little closer to the front and had tears coming down their faces because for the very first time, they didn't see people as herds. They didn't see people as masses. They saw people having souls that needed Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is casting vision to them. And he told them, pray ye the Lord of the harvest, that he'd send forth labors into the harvest. And what he's really telling them, we need to pray for God to fill the need. And we know that scripture tells us that Jesus spent the night in prayer got the mind of God, who the 12 would be, he would choose to be his apostles, his sent ones. Vision should move you. Vision should change you. Vision should prop you to action. We see the watchman's vision, but notice in verses 3 to 4, notice the watchman is vexed. In verses 3 and 4, he gives us a very troubling description of what he heard, what he saw. He describes his pain. He was vexed with pain. He said, my loins are filled with pain. Pangs have taken hold upon me as the pangs of a woman that travaileth. Now he was not mocking the birthing process of a woman, the travail a woman goes through. But because we know he had sons, we know that he most likely assisted his wife in the birth of those sons. And he probably thought as his wife travailed, I wish I could trade places with her and let me travail for her. And he describes what he saw as causing him to go through travail. Notice he says in verse 3, he was bowed down at the hearing of it. He was dismayed at the seeing of it. And I'm going to tell you this morning, when you hear God's word, and as we're preaching on prophecy, we should feel the same way, that we're bowed down, and we're troubled in our heart and dismayed at it. He said, my heart panted, fearfulness, affrighted me. You know what he's saying there? I got so anxious. I got so anxious. My heart rate increased. I had palpitations. My blood pressure increased. It was bothering me. He was having what the equivalent of what we would define today as an anxiety attack. And then he said, fearfulness, affrighted me. Why? Because he saw a mighty nation that would be brought down. He's vexed with pain. But notice in verse 4 and verse 8, he's vexed to prayer. Verse 4, he said, I was dismayed at the seeing of it. 
In verse 8, as he stands in the watchtower, he's talking to God. And in verse 8, he says, My Lord, I stand continually upon the watchtower in the daytime, and I'm in, I'm in my ward whole night. I'm so bothered by what I see, I cannot leave my post, is what he's saying. Something that moves you needs to move you to prayer. And we see the ministry of intercession. Paul said, I will that first of all, prayers, supplications, and intercessions be made for all men. And thanksgivings be made for all men. Intercession is when we go to prayer, earnest prayer, diligent prayer, hard praying for people and their needs. He was moved to prayer. I reminded the Apostle Paul speaks about the need for being moved to prayer. In Romans 15, 30, he's writing to the church at Rome. He said, Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. He was asking the church at Rome, the word strive literally means, I want you to wrestle in your prayers to God for me. I want you to get on your face before God and wrestle in your prayers for me. Look at it again. He says that you strive <laughs> together with me in your prayers to God for me. He said, once you start praying for me, the devil is going to fight you. And once you start praying for me, weariness will set in. And once you start praying for me, you're, gonna, you're just going to want to quit. You're going to feel difficulty. But he says, you've got to stay in it. I need your prayers. I need you to wrestle in prayer for me. He later on talked about a colleague in the ministry in Colossians 4.12, the pastor of the church Colossi. This pastor's name was Epaphras. The name Epaphras means lovely. And would it be that God, all of God's people would be lovely in our spirit and lovely in our disposition and lovely in how we serve the Lord and lovely in how we worship God. And I believe this man Epaphras was a lovely Christian. And Epaphras heard about the plight of Paul being in that Roman prison, being in prison that first time, being chained to two guards there. And so he leaves his post there and he assigns someone else to watch the church at Colossae. And as he does so, he goes over there to that place to be with Paul. And Paul got to watch this dear pastor firsthand. He watched his pastors. He served God. And Paul got up many mornings and he saw Epaphras up way before him. And there in that little confined space, he heard Epaphras praying for the church at Colossae. He heard him call out the names of those people one by one. And he watches, he prayed, and he watched this man, his beads of sweat were building up on his forehead. And his sweat was running down his face. And he watched this man. He was just completely out of the element of being here. On his, on, just being in tune with everybody here. And he was in tune with God. I mean, this man was in the very presence of God. And Paul defined this one, Ephesians, uh, Colossians 4.12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluted you. He says, listen, your pastor's with me. Your pastor loves you. Your pastor sends you his greetings. Your pastor, but I'm going to tell you about your pastor. He said, he is always laboring fervently for you in prayers. You know what he's saying there? It's the word that is used for wrestling. He is always laboring fervently. I've watched him grapple with the demons for your soul. I've seen him wrestling with the angel for your soul. I've seen him wrestling for your doctrinal stability. I've seen him wrestling for your doctrinal purity. I've seen him wrestling for your spiritual growth. I've seen him praying that, that the Christ would rise in you and Jesus would be preeminent in you. I've seen that he's prayed that you'd be strengthened and almighty in the inner man, being fruitful and every good work. I've watched him as he's labored fervently for you in prayers. You know what Paul's telling us? Paul is saying that if we're going to pray, if we're going to spend time in God, we've got to be vexed in our praying for the needs of others today.
And I'm going to tell you this morning, we need to be vexed in our praying because our world is in a mess. Our world is spiraling downwards. I'm going to tell you, with, with reopenings and all that, our world is not any better. Our world is worse. Listen, you would think, you would think people staying at home, sheltered in place, that their marriages would be better. You would think that people sheltering in place, that their kids would be a little more disciplined. You would think sheltered in place, there'd be some wholesome parent-child time. But I want to tell you from what even the secularists are telling us, that's not happening. Domestic violence has, has increased. Domestic abuse has increased. All of these things. Child abuse has increased. I mean, you know, it's just, it's a sad thing when you think about something like that. Isaiah was moved to prayer. Don't be someone. You're so overwhelmed with a burden that the best you can do is send your pastor a text message or tell a friend of yours, Pray for me, and you don't pray for yourself. You've got to learn to rest on prayer. Prayer is work. Prayer is hard work. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Real prayer is not vain repetitions. Real prayer is not just going off a list. We see the watchman who is vexed. But notice, if you would, we see a watchman in his vision, a watchman who is vexed. But notice the watchman and his vista. We get to verse 5 through 9, actually 5 to 12. And God commissions Isaiah to go to a watchtower. In ancient days... Watchtower is a high vantage point upon a wall, or it could be an independent building, an independent structure that they built up. And a man is posted to watch there, and sometimes more than one man. And a city typically would have watchmen around the perimeter of the walls watching for anyone and anything that approaches a city. Notice in verse 6, we see the assignment of this watchman. He said, For thus hath the Lord said unto me, Go, said a watchman, let him declare what he seeth. Now, Isaiah knew what a watchman was. <coughs> but God gave him an individual commission. Because he got the word of the Lord. For thus hath the Lord said to me, Go and set a watchman, let me declare what he seeth. A watchman's responsibility was to be on the lookout for the safety of the city. He was positioned to look far and to look near. He was posted, as he said here, to declare what he saw. We see his assignment. We see in verse 7 and 8 his alertness. Notice some things about his alertness here. There was diligence in his alertness. The Bible says in verse 7, he hearkened diligently with much heat. Now, some of us, all of us are different personalities. I tend to be more on the type A hyper side. And if I see something, I get kind of, I jump on it right away, sometimes a little bit prematurely. But a watchman and other personalities, 
would tend to be a little bit calmer, a little bit more disposed to wait and see. And there's good to both. There's bad to both. But a watchman was to err on the side of being hyper. A watchman had to always remember that he had the safety of the city as his responsibility. And the Bible says here, he hearkened diligently with much heat. And we see not only his diligence, but we see the duration of time that he served as a watchman. Notice verse 8. He said, I stand continually. Remember, I remind you this morning, and I, and I think you know where I'm going with this, but every Christian's a watchman. You're a watchman. You've been posted by God on the watchtower of God. And I'm not talking about the Jehovah Witnesses watchtower. That's a misnomer altogether with that. Need to put that in there just so you hear that. The only one watchtower, that's the word of God. He said, I stand continually in that watchtower. And he got more descriptive than that. He said, in the daytime. And I said in my ward whole nights, the hardest time to be in the watchtower was at the heat of the day when your eyes would start playing tricks on you because of the heat and dehydration. And at night, when it's very difficult to see afar. And he's staying here, he spent his entire time in the watchtower. May I remind you this morning, brother and sister in Christ that is watching today, we are not witnesses to Jesus Christ or called soul winners at convenience or on set days. It is through the daytime and whole nights. Continually, the Bible says. And notice the descriptiveness in his alertness. He said in verse 8, he, he called it exactly what he saw. A chariot with a couple of horsemen, a chariot of asses, and a chariot of cats. And he called it exactly what he saw. He saw chariots. He saw the animals leading the chariots, which is a different, different discussion there. And he saw the men. And he said in verse 9, a lion, which means attack is coming. Attack is coming. He's on his vista. He's at the highest vantage point of the city. He has an assignment. He has an alertness. Hey, he has an accountability. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel 33, verses 2 to 7. I want to read it, even though I need to move on. And it says, Son of man, speak to the children of thy people and say unto them, When I bring the sword upon a land... If the people of the land take a man of their coast and send him for their watchman, he was one of them. When he seeth the sword come upon the land, he blow the trumpet and warns the people. So a watchman had to have a trumpet. It didn't say he had to be skilled in the trumpet. He just had to blow the trumpet. Amen? Then whomsoever heareth the sound of the trumpet and taketh not warning, if the sword comes and take him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. Stop there. The watchman in his accountability. Now, we've already talked about his assignment and his alertness. And incorporating these verses, he was to, he was to be watching 
And we saw someone coming, like these chariots that Isaiah saw, he presumed at that moment in time that the sword was coming, that war was coming, that a fight was on the way. And so he would grab that trumpet that he was given and he would blow that trumpet and sound the alarm. And the sound of the alarm, everyone in that town who heard that alarm was to be moved towards, towards action. They need to be moved towards safety. And the Bible says here in verse, verse 4 that if that person who heard it did not take warning, then that person, their own blood was on their heads and on their hands because they did not heed the warning. But in verse 5, he heard the sound of the trumpet and took not warning. His blood shall be upon him, but he that taketh warning shall deliver his soul. But if the watchman see the sword come and blow not the trumpet and the people be not warned, if the sword come, and take any person from among them. He is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood will require the watchman's hand. Now when God wrote that to Ezekiel, I believe Ezekiel was moved in his office as a prophet of God. Because this is what God was saying. The watchman's there in the watchtower. He sees the danger coming. But he doesn't blow the trumpet. He doesn't sound an alert. There is no warning. And the Bible says the sword comes and the people are taken captive. And notice the description here. And if he takes any person from among them, he's taken away in his iniquity. He says to that watchman, their blood is on your hands. This morning, brother and sister in Christ, we are standing in God's watchtower. And when we don't give the message out, when we delay, when we treat it half-heartedly, the blood of those people is on our hands. It's on our hands. We are responsible for what happens to them because we did not sound the alarm. If they don't heed it, their blood is not on our hands. That's why every service and invitation is given. That's why we make much about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we're watching upon the wall that need to sound the trumpet and sound the alarm. We cannot decide for a person, but we can blow the trumpet loud enough that they'll make the right decision. They'll make a Christ-honoring decision. They'll accept the Lord. Why? Because if we don't, their blood will be on our hands. Hey, you remember back there in Corinth when Paul was preaching and he had several weeks he preached and nobody got saved and the, the Jews started to mock him and they started to blaspheme the name of God and then Paul got up and he shook the dust off his feet and he said this to him. He said, your blood be upon your own heads. He said, I've done all I can. I've, 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 I've blown the trumpet. I've sounded the alarm here in Corinth. He said, now your blood is on your own heads, you Jews here in the synagogue. We see the watchman on his vista, but you notice the watchman in his voice. The watchman sees movement. He sees adversity. The Bible says in verse 8, he cried a lion. Verse 9, it says, and he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. In the graven images of her gods, he's broken unto the ground. There's the voice of the watchman. There are two visions that Isaiah saw in this passage of Scripture. 
The first vision is the fall of Babylon. He begins by talking about it being the desert of the sea. And he calls, he calls Assyria the treacherous, the treacherous one and the, and the deceit, deceitful de, uh, a dealer there. And he talks about here that he sees him fallen. And he says, and all the graven images of her gods, he is broken to the ground. He sees the judgment of God upon Babylon. And he's so moved. And he's so bothered by it. Notice he uses a description in verse 10 that was very prominently used both in Old and New Testament. He talks about the threshing floor. Now, if you know anything about ancient days, and even some cultures today, because they don't have all the advanced equipment, in the ancient days, as they, as they reaped their harvest, they would take all the stalks of wheat, and they'd lay it on what was called a, a level threshing floor. And they would take their oxen that were yoked up, and the, the oxen would either trample upon it or they'd roll the oxen with carts over it to break the kernel off the head of the, of the, of the wheat head so that the chafe could be separated from the wheat and so forth there. And so they did this to break it off because they knew that by trampling on it, that would break it off and it was much more effective than men just shaking it on their own and trying to do their thing there. And the threshing floor describes, if you would, in fact, we get our word tribulation from the word tribulum, which is used to talk about the grinding of things and, and the grinding and the pressure. And so a threshing floor because there was stomping and because there was pressure and because there'd be trampling over there and basically the wheat would be set the head of the wheat kernel would be separated from the rest of the stock it basically is a picture of God's judgment on a person or a nation and so Isaiah as he's speaking this here in verse 10 he says here oh my threshing and the corn of my floor he's feeling an intensity in his heart an anxiety in his soul palpitation in his heart fear in his heart because he said that which I've heard of the Lord of hosts the God of Israel have I declared unto you what kind of prophet was Isaiah a responsible prophet Yes, Babylon was cruel, and Babylon was crafty, and Babylon was the center of commercialism, and Babylon was a place of political corruption, and Babylon was, a, was the center of all idolatry. But listen, Isaiah had a prophet's heart for those people, and he's concerned because he realized that judgment had not come because judgment would come. He foresaw the judgment that would come by the hands of the Medes and Persians there in Daniel chapter 5. And so he's saying, I can see ahead what's going to happen here. And he could see ahead. In fact, he even had a little bit of an idea there because he lived to see the time when King Hezekiah, later in later years of Isaiah's life, when King Hezekiah was supposed to die and God recovered him his illness. And when Isaiah got well, he got a letter from the king of Babylon. Remember that? Isaiah 39. And they sent a delegation down to see him. And, got, and, and Hezekiah wanted to show off all his treasures. And he wanted to show off everything in his home. And he allowed this delegation of Babylon to come in. And it's what the government, what our, what our, what our government force would say. He showed them classified information. They were not supposed to see it. Because the question Isaiah first asked, he said, who came to see you? Second question, yes, what have they seen in thy house? And Isaiah lived long enough to realize that Babylon, what they saw, gave them enough information that one day Nebuchadnezzar would rise up and Nebuchadnezzar would send groups down and they would starve off Jerusalem. Famine would come and then later on pestilence would come and then they would die by the sword and others would be taken off captive. He would, he would see in his vision the, the trampling of Jerusalem. So Isaiah sees this vision here and he's crying out loud. He says here in verse 10, he's crying out first of all to Babylon. He's saying, Babylon, God loves you. Babylon, Jesus died for you. Babylon, you can be saved. Babylon, you can repent. He says, that which I've heard of the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have I declared of you. And notice, if you would, he talks about God being, the Lord being the Lord of hosts. Jehovah Sabbath, he says, listen, it's God's armies that are going to come down on you. 
But you see, there's a second vision. Excuse me, before we even go there. There was another group of people he was concerned about besides Babylon. In this first vision, he was also concerned about Judah. Because Judah was dabbling with idols. King Ahaz was king at that time. King Ahaz was the forerunner of those who would desecrate the altars. We'll be talking in our prophecy studies about Antiochus Epiphanes. how the term that God gave Daniel, the abomination of desolation, is tied to Antiochus Epiphanes. When he slaughtered pigs on the altars of God, and smeared their blood all over the temples, all over the altars, it's called the abomination of desolation. Ahaz did something like that. And Isaiah had enough of a vision from God to know Ahaz is messing our kingdom up. And what he saw was not just for Babylon. It was also for Judah. It was telling Judah, Judah needed to wake up. Judah needed to clean up the house of God. Judah needed to have a heart that was completely devoted to God and not have a heart that was divided in two places because I think Isaiah thought back to the days of Elijah when he said, long halt you between two opinions. And then God gives him a second vision. Notice if you would, Isaiah is standing there in the watchtower there where he could see the desert of the sea, Babylon. And from afar, another adversary of, of, of Israel and Judah cries out. And in verse 11, the second vision he gets, the second thing he sees as a watchman is the burden of Duma. Now Duma is a play on the spelling of the word. It basically means Edom. Duma means silence, or specifically the silence of death. It was a play on words. You reverse the words around, and it's the word Edom. And he says, the burden of Duma. It's not Isaiah calling out to Edom, because Edom would fall. By the way, at just around that time, you can find this, I think, in 2 Chronicles 28 that Edom would be one of the nations God would send to trample upon Judah and Ahaz and would take some of the people captive. We read about that in 2 Chronicles 28. But it's not Isaiah speaking to Edom first. It's someone at Edom crying out to Isaiah because Edom has heard this vision. Edom realizes God is true and God is real. And God is going to send judgment upon Babylon. And they're thinking, well, what about us? And so they asked a question to the watchman, that is to Isaiah. And the question was dualful because when they asked it twice, it was basically saying, hey, listen, you've got our attention. We really mean business. We're not messing with you. We're not playing with your head. We really want you to know. We need to know an answer to our question. They said, watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? And here's, here's what they were asking. They're saying, Isaiah, how long will the night be? What's going to happen during the nighttime? Listen, Jesus said, the night cometh when no man can work. Night is associated with bad things. Listen, sin has a night. When Saul sought advice from the witch of Endor, he ate a meal at her home, and then we are told, he and his men went out at night. 
In Proverbs 7, we read of a, man in the, of a man who in the twilight, in the evening, the black and dark night, went to the house of a strange woman. A sin always has its night. Hell has its night. It's described as a place of outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. We cannot avoid the preaching on hell. Someone said when we had hell in the pulpit, we didn't have it on the streets. Now we don't have hell in the pulpit, we have it in the streets. Some truism to that. Watchmen, what of the night? How much of the night has gone by? Will there be light? Is there hope? Are there opportunities? Someone going through a trial? Somebody languishing in a hospital bed? Someone going through treatments that are not working? Someone's under incredible financial duress? Someone dealing with severe depression and anxiety attacks and not knowing what to do? I mean, for them, their nights are long. And like this, this man from Edom, he said, Watchmen, what of the night? And the voice of Isaiah said, notice verse 12, the morning cometh. What of the night? He said, the sun's coming up in the morning. He said, weeping endureth for the night, but joy cometh in the morning. There's hope. Jacob wrestled with the angel all night, but as the sun started to rise, his name got changed from Jacob to Israel. Thank God Jesus was buried in a borrowed tomb at evening, but thank God early in the morning he rose again from the dead. The morning cometh. Yes, there is a night, but I remind you, the morning cometh. I remind you, the morning tells us Jesus is in control. And the morning tells us that God never forsakes us. And the morning tells us God is not a, the man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. And I'm reminded today that the day star will arise with healing in his wings for every one of us. I'm reminded this morning that you might have difficulty through tonight, but the morning cometh. Yes, sir, your body may be filled with pain and your nights may be filled with sleeplessness, but thank God when the morning comes. But he reminded them because Edom was under judgment. The morning cometh and also the night. He said, morning is only a small window of opportunity. Night is still coming. Night is still coming. You're not saved. You've never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal savior. Heaven's not your home. Your sins are not forgiven. You may be a religious person, but you're not regenerated. If you're not saved, you're not a child of God. The Bible says we're children of Satan when we're not saved. We're children of darkness. We're children that are depraved. God doesn't want you in that place. God wants you to know you may be a good person and you're living in the morning where you've had good health and good fortune and your kids have all done well and your grandkids are doing well. And you've got money in the bank and your retirement's set and everything's good and you're traveling. He, you know, he says, you know, the morning, you're, you're living in that morning time. But listen, he says, the night also cometh. The night of death will come. The night of accountability before God will come. So he tells Edom, 
the morning cometh, and also the night. Morning reminds us the opportunities are few and they're dwindling. The door of opportunity will eventually close. The coming of night is taking away. Jesus said, I must work the works of him that sent me. While it is day, the night cometh when no man can work. The call of mission is beckoning now because the night's coming. The call to dedicate your life and your body to Jesus unto the perfect will of God is now because the night cometh. The call to get saved is now because the night cometh. The watchman had a vision. The watchman was vexed. The watchman was on his notice. The last thing that's important, the last thing that's important, the watchman has a verdict. The watchman has a verdict. Watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? Look at verse 12. The watchman said, The morning cometh, and also the night. There's a semicolon there. If you will inquire, inquire ye. You have more questions? I'll take them. You want to know more? Go ahead and ask. But here's this verdict. Would you look at the last three words? Last two words. Return, come. Come. You know what Jesus' verdict is? Come. You know what Jesus' verdict is? For Christian, listen. Someone defined church as being non-essential. For some people, before that definition came about, church was non-essential then. Let it not be church is still not essential now. Return, come. You say, well, I'm very far away. Nobody's so far away you can't come. You don't understand I'm so deep in sin. Nobody's so deep in sin you cannot come. Return, come. But I've been rejected. Return, come. But, I, I, but, I, but, I'm, I, but nobody knows my troubles. Jesus knows your troubles. Return, come. The watchman's verdict is you can return. You can come to God right now. Come unto me, all you that labor and that, that are, are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. His verdict is just come. As we close out the book of Revelation, Revelation 22, he says, come. Come. Anybody can come. You can come for forgiveness. You can come for a cleansing. You can come to get your sins covered. You can come and be saved today. You can be restored and made new again. You can come. You know what Jesus told Lazarus? Lazarus is dead in the tomb. He said, Lazarus, come forth. Maybe some Christians, you're kind of like Lazarus. You've been just kind of dead and wrapped up in old, dirty grave clothes. You need to come out. You need to hear the voice of the Lord and come out. The stone's been rolled away. You just need to come out. Amen. Return. Come. Isaiah was standing in the watchtower. He fulfilled his responsibility. He knew his assignment. He showed his alertness. He exercised his accountability. 
The last thing we see him doing is he has a vision for Babylon and a vision for Edom. He gives a verdict. Return, come. When a jury makes a decision, the final decision is called a verdict. The verdict is return, come. If you're struggling with that, just come. Come to the fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Where sinners plunged beneath that flood can lose all their guilty stains. Come to the fountain of living waters and drink abundantly because Jesus will satisfy your thirst. Come, let him take the burden off your, off your shoulders. Come, and let him be the God of peace that bruises Satan under your feet. Come, and let him be the God of all comfort. Come, because he says, casting all our burdens upon him, for he careth for you. He does care for you. He loves you. Just come. Just come this morning. In a moment, we're going to show you how you can be saved. We're going to show you how you can be saved right now. The watchman has cried. Judgment is coming. The Bible says it is appointed unto men once to die. And listen, after this, there's no in between. After this is the judgment. There's no purgatory. There's no holding cell. There is no reincarnation. After this is the judgment. Isaiah saw things that bothered him and troubled him and stirred him. And he cried out. He told them what he saw. He said, that which I've heard have I declared unto you. Would you get saved this morning? Would you trust Christ your Savior? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. This morning God is your Savior. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.